This morning, we're going to talk about the covenants of God. Now, I told you that I need to be good because in my studying, I started to become irritated. And I, who, who gets irritated when they read the Word of God? Anybody? The Word of God? Yeah? Me? Zero. I find absolute peace, tranquility, hope, excitement. I love the Word of God. When I start reading other people's words, I start getting irritated, angry. I want to pick up stones and throw them at people's heads. I thought that I was going to spend a couple weeks going through the covenants of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled, how they apply, and that kind of stuff. As I was reading what so-and-so says about so-and-so in different denominations and different ideas, I shelved that idea because all I was doing was getting irritated. Because I wasn't reading what the Word of God had to say about His promises. It ended up being long commentaries about this is what so-and-so says. And then here's who so-and-so says against that so-and-so. And my eyes just went cross. I'm starting to get angry and irritated. So we're going to just stick with the Word of God. But we're going to cover all of the covenants, the major covenants in the Bible today. So in Romans chapter 9, I want you to turn here because Paul is just pouring out his heart. Uh, in verse 3, it says, For his brethren, his countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. But listen to this statement in regards to the nation of Israel who God has chosen. It says, To whom pertain the adoption? Which, again, this, this means that God reached into humanity and he called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants. These are my children by adoption, father, son. We will talk about that today. To whom belong the glory. And again, this is glory has everything to do with weight, your opinion. And when you talk about the glory and the majesty of God and how he revealed himself through the children of Israel over the millennia, awesome. To whom belong the covenants. And that's what we're going to get into today. To whom uh, belong the giving of the law through the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. To whom belong the service of God, I, the idea of the priesthood and serving God in the temple and all of its ministries. And to whom belong the promises, the sure, true promises that we're going to sit in again this morning. Of whom are the fathers, the patriarchs, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Huge statement that Paul is giving there just in the midst of that argument, but I'm going to use that to springboard into this whole idea of the covenant. So turn your Bible to 2 Samuel 7 is where we're really going to study this morning. But it's one of these exalted portions of the word of god i love the word of god from genesis to revelation but there are certain passages that have a lot more weight than others and this is known as the davidic covenant when you start sitting in systematic theology and what god promised to david so we'll sit in that that covenant in de detail this morning but that covenant comes on the heels of prior ones when you sit in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates the heavens and the earth, we're told that he creates Adam and Eve, male and female, man in his image. And in that relationship, he gives to Adam and Eve dominion over all of his creation. They are blessed, father, 
the Almighty God chose to create human beings. And in that relationship, he's giving them duties. He's given them work. And in that, we're told when he puts them into the Garden of Eden, he gives an if statement. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's the consequence? It's death, and we'll define that in a minute. But you can freely eat of all the other trees of the garden. So the if statement is, if you obey me, you will have life, my life. If you disobey me, the consequence of that sin, that lack of holiness, that rebellion, is death. And death is ultimately defined as a separation. So we watch death enter into the life of Adam and Eve as they are separated from God in the garden. Now in that, at the end of, that, at the end of chapter 3, we're told that you know, Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness. They tried to cover their sin with fig leaves, sewing their own aprons, so to say. But we're told at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis that God clothed them in animal skin which means that there was a sacrifice that occurred. There was a death of an animal that atoned for and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve, and that imagery carries all the way forward to Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his blood covering our sins. But that's that first covenant relationship with God as creator and his creation. Here's the rules. Here's the parameters of the relationship, and we watch Adam and Eve violate that. After that whole scene, we have humanity grow, which gets us to Genesis chapter 6. And 6 through 9, you have the whole story in regards to Noah. But there was something that was growing in humanity, and God, te- God tells us in Genesis 6, it was evil that was growing in the heart. And over time, this evil grew to the point where God decided in his just, righteous, holy, and loving judgment to execute all of humanity except eight souls. When those eight souls get off of the ark, we're told that Noah builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice to the Lord in that whole scene. And in that scene, God makes a covenant, not with just Noah, but with that eight and all future humanity, that, I, that God says, I will never again judge humanity with this kind of judgment again. So as long as the earth remains, the seasons will keep going on, the sun will keep rising up every day, but I will never again flood the earth to wipe out all of humanity because of their sin. But the reality, you sit in this, in what God is communicating to all of humanity, how serious is sin? I mean, it's, it's one of those passages that it's not a fairy tale, it's not a myth, this is a true historical event, but it was a historical event that was the judgment of God against the wickedness that was within the human heart. But God doesn't leave us in that sin and in that death, right? He had, he had clear instructions that he gave Adam and Eve as they were leaving the garden. Noah has clear instructions when it comes to sacrifice and that atoning And that covering of sins, that's why he builds an altar and sacrifices an animal to begin with. So you go through all of Genesis, well, not even all of Genesis, then you sit with Abraham, major covenants of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a singular man. He chooses him, he takes him out of all of humanity, and he gives that one man promises. We're told later on in Genesis that why did he choose Abraham? Why did he choose that guy? 
And there's one line, and I think it's in uh, Genesis 17, that it says that God knew that Abraham would teach his children righteousness and justice. Major, major theme of all of the word of God. It's mishpat and uh, sedkenu in the Hebrew, but you watch these two twin words married together throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. Humanity lacks justice and lacks righteousness, and we're told that we only find that in God and God alone. But when he chooses that one man, he gives Abraham a promise. He says, to you... And to your seed, I am going to bless all of humanity. And it's a proclamation of the gospel to Abraham. Because we're left with the question, well, how? How is, how is the Lord going to bless all of humanity through this one man and this one man's descendants? In Genesis 15, you are sitting with Abraham. He's crying out to God. God, you've promised this promise to my children and to my seed. I don't have any kids. And God gives him that promise of there is, I am going to give you a child, and there's, there's a whole bunch of depth in that promise. There's different details, but ultimately it's leading to that the promised son Isaac and all the promises associated with Abraham are given to Isaac. They're confirmed with Jacob, whose name is trans, trans, uh, changed to Israel, and we watch Again, all of these covenants, these promises, the glory, the adoption, all of this definition that Paul is sitting in, he's, 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 just, he's lifting all of these ideas out of the pages of the Old Testament and God's promises to individuals. You see in uh, Genesis 15, when God is making this covenant, this agreement with, with Abraham, that Abraham doesn't have anything to do with that covenant. Noah didn't have anything to do with that covenant. Adam and Eve didn't have anything to do with it. It was all, this is what God is saying that he is going to do, and it's all based in him, right? But in those, in all of those, there's always this if statement. If you obey, there is a blessing. There is a, there's a joy. There's a, there is his life found in, in that loving, obedient relationship with him. And if you choose rebellion, we'll promise that here's all the consequences of it. And ultimately, so when you sit in that major covenant with Moses, the details begin in Exodus 19 when you have God there speaking on Mount Sinai. So the tablets that he pins with his own finger that we just covered a couple of weeks ago, the Ten Commandments represent the foundation of that covenant of the law and all that God communicates. But it's not just Genesis 19. You go through, or sorry, Exodus 19. You got to go through roughly chapter 25. God gives him a bunch of details. And 26 is the instruction to build the tabernacle. And that carries forward through the rest of Exodus. But then you go sit in Leviticus and Numbers. And then Deuteronomy is the retelling which all of that constitutes ultimately all the details of the Mosaic Covenant. Here's what I am commanding you to do. Here's what I am commanding you not to do. Here's who I am as God. Here's what I am going to do for you. And here are all of my instructions for your life. And again, the idea of the law that we're told in the New Testament is that it became, it became a fence and the law of God, the rules are ultimately a fence. When you start going too far in this direction, there's a fence. There's a rule 
that is to encourage you, encourage you and direct you to not cross over that fence, right? Not cross over the line. Don't do this or do that. There's, it's this schoolmaster, this teacher to keep us down the narrow lane. But in obedience to that, there's still nobody finds salvation. Nobody finds personal righteousness, personal holiness through obedience to these different rules that God conveys. But that becomes the framework for 1,500 years for the nation of Israel before God sends his son to be that ultimate sacrifice that all of the Mosaic law is imaging. And all of its sacrifices and all of its feasts and all of its rules and regulation, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of each one of those commands that we can't perform, that he performs for us. And what we lack he has covered us in his blood, and it's called the blood of the new covenant that we're going to get to at the very end of today's message. So we're sitting in multiple historical revelations of the Almighty God to humanity and specifically to the chosen nation of Israel to be a light to everyone. But as we're sitting in all of that history, all of that is background as we sit in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel this morning. So we've been watching David for quite a while as we've gone through 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel. In chapter 5, we have him established as the king over all the tribes of Israel. We have the conquest of Jerusalem. The enemies are defeated. Chapter 6 is the whole scene of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So now we're sitting in this chapter in David's life. And again, it's just a snapshot, but he's roughly 40 years old. He's, re he's been roughly king, let's say, for 10 years. Seven and a half years he was king in Hebron. He's now in Jerusalem. So let's just place him right there at 40 years old. He has already gone through all of his life experiences with God. He's watched God fulfill all of these historical promises. And now he is established as king the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God, is now there in the community. Everything is going great in David's life, and it's awesome. But David's meditating in his heart. It says, now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the, uh, and the Lord had given him rest, given him peace from all enemies, all his enemies, all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, look. And again, this is, this is the imperative. So open up your eyes, Nathan, and see. Because David has opened up his eyes and seen what's going on. And it's a command for us to open up our eyes and look at the scenario. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. David's house has been built, the house of a king. But the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, dwells inside tent curtains then nathan said to the king go do make go build all that is, all that's in your heart david for the lord is with you so again in this we want to sit in david's emotions we're told here that he is in his house that's been built he he knows that he's been established we are told earlier on he knows that, uh, he, you know, he's had a couple of battles with the Philistines, but now as he's established here in Jerusalem, um, he has peace. There's rest. There's no more warfare at this, at this moment in David's life. 
And as David has just had this incredible religious experience and the celebration and the pouring out of his heart of bringing the ark into Jerusalem, he's now looking at the tent that he had constructed for the ark, for the presence of God to dwell in the midst of the nation of Israel and all of that imagery that we've already covered. So David's looking at his house, and then he's looking at what's defined as the house of God. He's saying something's out of order here. Why am I in a house of cedar? Why is my house better than God's house is his perspective. But you also have to sit in his culture and his time. This is what kings do. What do kings do? They build, right? They go out to war. They conquer. They keep the culture safe. There's all kinds of economic administration that's going on. David is engaged in all kinds of religious uh, administration as he's appointing gatekeepers and singers and all the responsibilities and ministry associated with the temple we have all these snapshots of david's heart that he's doing well and leading the people but then as he's just looking as he's meditating in his own heart he's looking at his house and he's looking where the ark of of god is is dwelling in curtains behind you know sewn material animal skins saying something's off So he calls the prophet. So we're going to see Nathan a few times. Nathan is going to be the prophet of God that that God sends to David to confront him with his sin in regards to Bathsheba and Uriah. We're going to see Nathan later on. He continues to support David. So we'll see him as the kingdom is transitioned to uh, David's uh, David's son Solomon as king. But the role of the prophet in, in this time has essentially become an advisor to the king. We watch Samuel. Samuel as a judge and as a prophet of God. He was in that position of, of national leadership, um, similar to God appointing the judges. We see Gad, a prophet. We see the school of prophets. We watched uh, Saul prophesy with the prophets. So we watch all this establishment of this office of what it means to be a prophet in the culture. But now that David's in this position of king, we're going to watch prophets through the Old Testament. They're in this position of advisor. They're in this position of a sounding board. So David is calling his religious advisor as a prophet of God, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? And Nathan says, yeah, I'm seeing what you're seeing. David, God loves you, and he's been with you. And Nathan just, Nathan encourages David, go and do. Go and build all that's in your heart. Go for it. Do you not love that encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ? This is, this is what I do all the time. So many of you, you'll come to me with ideas. Hey, this is what I think God is doing. This is what I want to do. And I just get to be a cheerleader and encourager. Whatever you think God's directing you to do, do it. And let me know how I can help, right? Go and do all that's in your heart. I know that you're directed at the Lord. Now, is your heart always correct in that? Is my heart always correct in giving you that encouragement? Not always. Because a lot of times we need, that might not be God's will. It sounds really good. It's reasonable. It's, uh, it's desirable. But maybe that's not God's actual will. So David, great heart. He's aimed at the Lord. The desire that he has, Nathan is in total agreement with him. Go and do it. But God has a different idea. So verse 4, it says, But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Which is just fascinating to me, too, because um, why didn't God just speak directly to David? 
Why do you have to use the intermediary of a prophet? Could he have just spoken to David and given David the instructions and the vision? Yes or no? Absolutely. Does God use intermediaries in your life? Will he use another human being to speak his will into your life? Absolutely. Does he have the freedom and access to speak directly to your soul? If you've given it to him, right? But here in this scene, God is speaking to Nathan, not to David. So the word Lord is coming to Nathan the prophet. This is awesome. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Think of that statement. Think of the source of that sentence. Think of our understanding of who God is. Think of all the church buildings that have been built over the millennia. Do we really as human beings think that we can build a house, a dwelling place, an abode for the creator of the heavens and the earth? Nope. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. So again, God gave the very clear instructions to the children of Israel as he has delivered them from Egypt. Here is the structure that I'm telling you to build, and it's portable because we're going to be moving through life is the idea. But God has promised to dwell in the midst of his people, but there's still a separation. So all of the imagery that the tabernacle conveys, but God's saying, I've been moving about. My presence has been in this tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Again, in, this, in the culture, in the context, this is what the pagans did for their gods. This is what a conquering king would do as he begins to build his kingdom. You start building stuff. You start building buildings, and you're going to seek your religious circumstance to build a building for your God that has made you king and has made you great in your culture so that you will force your God ultimately to continue to bless you. It's a, it's a natural thing of paganism and idolatry that we see in history and across the pages of the Bible. But God is contrary to all of that false religion. And he's looking at, he's speaking to David through Nathan as he's interacted with the children of Israel since the time of Abraham. Has there ever been a time when I've commanded this structure to be built for me? And he says, nope. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. There's multiple points that I would encourage you to sit in. There's, there's multiple lines here um, that I'll pull out that you can own as promises to you and just sit in your own relationship with the Lord. And this first statement, so thus says the Lord of hosts to David, I took you from the sheepfold 
from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. Sit, this, sit, sit in that statement. God is the one, again, who reached into humanity to this nobody shepherd, David. And God says, I am the one who took you from following these sheep to be a ruler, to be a shepherd over my people. I'm the one that did it, God is saying to David. Remember what I've done. I, God says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. Is that true for you? This is the last promise of the New Testament before Jesus is ascending to heaven. I will be with you always. And this is this definition of having faith in Jesus Christ, that we're told that he has taken up residence within us, and he is always with us. He'll never abandon us. He won't leave us orphans. He is here, and he is present. But again, just to sit in that definition, do you know and understand that God has reached into humanity, and he has seized you for himself? Is that humbling? I, I treasure that idea. Because I know exactly where I was as a young man, as a wanderer, and where I was in this world, and I was not seeking God. God came, and he took me. He took me through a a process. He took me through a series of revelations in regards to who he is and who I am, who I was apart from him, and now who I am in him through faith. But this is that he has reached down and he has taken each one of us, seized us as his own. And the knowledge of that is simply through the confession of faith. And then we sit in this promise, just like he was to David, so is our God with us today. I have been with you always. And as I've been with you, what does he tell David? I have cut off all of your enemies before you. Have all of your enemies been cut out of your life? Sit in that declaration of God. This is, is, again, this is what the gospel proclaims to us. Our God, through faith in him, he has taken us to himself. He has taken up residence within us. He is in us and with us and for us. And he has promised that there is nothing that can stand between you and him. There is nothing that will conquer you. Now, we'll put ourselves into willful bondage when it comes to sins, the opinions of other people, but you sit in the reality of your relation. Do you know that you know that you know and understand that you are free from all enemies in Christ? There is no political enemy that has authority over you. There is no demonic enemy that has authority over you. There is nobody in the church that has authority over you. Your boss doesn't. Nobody has this dominating authority over your life in opposition that he is not capable of removing from your life and your soul. Peace, comfort, hope. There is no sin that is gripping my heart that he will not free me from. David is sitting in this reality as a 40-year-old man, and he's listening to these words as Nathan is communicating to him, reminding him, God has taken you, God is with you, God has given you peace in your life. And David has it physically in his context. He also has it spiritually. 
He also says, I have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. How many, how many men's names or women's names do you know from 3,000 years ago? That's a pretty high and exalted name for us to be sitting 3,000 years after David's life to be talking about his relationship with God and how he images God to us and all the different ways that God worked in him and through him. Did God give David a great name? Absolutely. Has God given you a great name? What do, what do people do in our culture to keep their name eternal? You build stuff. You build a building, right? Give some money. Make sure your name's on your tombstone so that some ancestor can look you up and there's that name. But how many, how many names do you know from history that God has lifted up and given great names to? So many are on the pages of the Bible. But this is a promise to me and to you. Do you know that God has given to you a great name? Your name Maybe not the name that you have right now, but we're told in the future that God is going to give you a name that only you and he know. And that name will exist for all eternity in his presence. He has given to you the same great name that he has lifted up for David. He has lifted up your name in his presence for all eternity. These are, these are incredible things that God has done in the life of others that we get to sit in it and say yes and amen, and that is awesome. Moreover, here's, so he's talking about this is what I have already done for you. Moreover, here's what I'm going to do in the future. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And that idea of move is tremble and agitation. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress, afflict them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. So from the time of Joshua and the judges up to this current time in David's life, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Also the Lord tells you, declares to you, that he will make you a house. Now sit in the sense, because God has already brought the children of Israel into the land that he has promised. These are his people, but he's still given this, as he's talking to Nathan, and Nathan is talking to David, God's promise is for a future. There is a place for my people where I am going to plant them. And this is the whole idea this morning of us being planted in the Lord, the Lord planting us in him, planting us in our context or in our time and our lives, and he uproots us and moves us and plants us again. But here's this promise for the place, the land of Israel, that place specifically there in Jerusalem. We can look to the future fulfillment of the new Jerusalem where we'll be planted for all eternity. A place for them to be planted, a place for them to dwell. It's their own. It's being given by the Lord. No more moving about. Again, if you know the Old Testament, you know that there's a lot of in and out there. So we're looking to ultimate future fulfillment of these things. At this time in David's life, there's peace. 
But God's given this promise. There's coming a day when the sons of wickedness, the sons of disobedient, those who are in opposition to God, they won't afflict you anymore or seek to oppress you. Our rest is truly in him. He is our rest. And then there's this also line. He will make you a house. You want to build God a house, David? God is in turn saying, I'm going to build you a house. And look at this promise, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, when your days are complete, when you rest with your fathers, literally, you lie down and die with your fathers, I will set up your seed. Look at all these promises. I'm going to set up your seed, your offspring after you, who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, literally, if he does wrong, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows, literally the the plagues, the illnesses of the sons of men. But my mercy, my loyal love, my covenantal love shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you, and your home and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, when you sit in many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, God is speaking to an individual in their context, in their time. There is a near fulfillment of those promises. And then often there's also a future ultimate fulfillment of what God is communicating. So as we sit in this language, near fulfillment for David, God is saying, I will establish your seed after you who, who will come from your body. So there's a future tense there. So David already has multiple sons that have been born. Of those sons, it's already being communicated to David. None of those sons are going to be the seed, the, your offspring, that, are going to, that I'm going to set up after you. Ultimately, this becomes Solomon, and we'll get into all of his story as we move forward. But God says, I will establish his kingdom. Did God establish Solomon as king? Yes, and he kept him as king. It was awesome. Did Solomon do lots of stupid Solomon did a ton of stupid, but did God remove his mercy from Solomon? He didn't. Even in Solomon's time, God says as a consequence of Solomon's sin, he told Solomon, the kingdom is going to be divided after you die. But Solomon is also used to be the one that he shall build a house for my name. So when you talk about the temple of the Old Testament, whose temple is it called? It's called Solomon's temple. Why? Because he's the man who is the one who built this structure. And again, the instruction is, here's this portable tent, God's presence moving with the children. And as he is establishing them there in this permanent place, it's good and it's right for this house to be built as a permanent place for God's presence in the midst of his people. It all makes sense. Later on, we're told in the Bible that God told David, I'm not letting you build my house because you're a man of war. You're a man of blood. 
Solomon wasn't that man. He was a man of wisdom, did a whole bunch of building, but his heart went wayward. So we sit in that near fulfillment that Solomon is the one who built a house for the name of God. Was his, was Solomon's throne established forever? You can say, yeah, and you can say, nah, I don't think so. Because his son, Rehoboam, that takes on the throne, there's a division of that throne, of that authority, of that seat. And we watch that tension going forward. Ultimately, as we move forward into Jeremiah, during the time of the Babylonians, the Babylonians come and they destroy this temple structure. They take out the kingdom. They take the children of Israel out of the land. Again, as a judgment for violation, violating the covenant of God. They disobeyed, so here were the curses that came into the nation. So, right away you would have to sit in now asking a question, all right, is God true or is God a liar? God promised this throne that it was going to be established forever, that there would be a king on this seat forever, true or false. God is true, but ultimately you have to look behind the language that's being expressed. So when you sit in the imagery as this is pointing to God's son, the Messiah, Jesus, in the flesh, and all that he did in his humanity, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, he's seated at the right hand of the Father on his throne, on the throne of the Davidic kingdom right now today. He is coming again in the future for a thousand years, and then the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem is going to be created. Again, Jesus is in this position of authority, this position of the throne, this position of the kingdom right now. So sit in it in the promises associated with Jesus. Jesus is called multiple times in the New Testament repetitiously that he is the son of David. So he is from the body of David in his humanity, and that's why the genealogies are so important in the New Testament. His kingdom is that kingdom which is established when Jesus comes in his public ministry. What is he saying? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That is this kingdom that God is promising. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. In the New Testament, what is the house that Jesus is building? It's people. The church. It's his, it's his body. Use the imagery in the New Testament of a, a physical body that he is the head and we are parts and members of that body. You sit in the imagery of a building, the exact same image, imagery. He is the foundation stone. He is the capstone. And every single one of us human souls that have faith in Jesus Christ are individual bricks in the building, the house of God that he is building. And again, Sit in all the future, all you got to do is go read the last couple chapters of Revelation, which are awesome, and we see the ultimate fulfillment of that house that God will dwell in for all eternity, in us dwelling with him. I will establish the throne, the seat of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father and he shall be my son. You sit in this definition with uh, Solomon and God and that adoption relationship that's being defined. We sit in this incredible definition of what is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, conveying the Son and whom was sent and all of that imagery across the pages of the New Testament. They're absolutely awesome. Jesus did not commit any wrong or iniquity. Solomon did and other kings did and God chastened them accordingly. But his mercy, his covenant that he's given here to David, his covenant love for all those who have faith in him and all of our stupidity, we are told that he will never abandon us, forsake us, incredible promises. And now David just gets to sit back with these words. Some people think David should be upset with God. David wanted to do something for God. Nathan told him to go ahead and do it. And now God corrects Nathan as in correcting God. You want to do something, but I'm not going to let you do it. Did David sit in a pity party for himself? God won't let me do what I want to do. We watch in the future. David knew that he wasn't going to be allowed to build this building, but David did everything uh, to make sure that Solomon was set up right to be able to do it. We we're told that David helped design the temple, that David helped provide all the materials for its building, and that Solomon and the people during Solomon's time are the one who built it. But look at David's response to God. King David goes in. Does he go into his own house, his prayer closet, his bedroom, his living room? Does he go in into the tabernacle we don't know where he goes in but we're told that he goes in and he just sits before god i think this is this is this is where god speaks to me the most there are times when i need to be on my face before god in awe in repentance whatever that in worship whatever that may look like but usually i am just sitting down with god with his word in my hands and I am in absolute humble awe. Look at David's words. Who am I, the Lord God? He's sitting in all these words that Nathan just said to him. David walks away from this conversation. Nathan communicating all that the God who created the heavens and the earth has just spoken to him. And he's sitting down. And he knows that God is there with him. And he's talking who am I? Who am I that you took me? Who am I that you've been with me? Who am I that you've given this victory over all of my enemies, this peace? Who am I to be the recipient of a single one of these promises? And for me, as I sit with God, my, my eyes get off myself really quick. And this is why I love the word of God. And I, 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 I need to turn off everybody else's voices. Because when I just sit in this document, I'm in awe of him every time I run across these incredible promises. Who am I, O oh Lord God? What, what's, what's my house that, you, that you've brought me thus far? So again, David, as a 40-year-old man with his history up to this point, who am I that you've even brought me this far? And, he, and yet, this, what you've already done in my life, this was a small thing in your sight. Minor, insignificant. 
We look at all these major miracles that God has done in our life, and they leave us in awe. They can leave us speechless and in wonder. But to God who created the heavens and the earth, I love my life and all that you've done in my life. It's easy for you. And I know it is because I know your character. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Again, he's, he's sitting in astonishment of that. Who am I? Look at look what you've already done in my life. I can't, I can't believe the promises that you've just given to me for the future. But as he says that I can't believe, and he's sitting in awe, ultimately there's this total trust and faith that I do believe what God has said. Is this the, is this the manner of men, O Lord God? Now, this, this is not the behavior of men. Only God does this. Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, you know me. You know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you've, you've done all of these great things. And all of these great things that you've done, you've, you've made your servant know them. This is why I love the word of God so much. He has made known, he has uncovered himself and his will and his plans and his purposes to each one of us. It's according to his will, it's according to his word, it's according to his heart. And he's doing all of this so that we would know him. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. David's sitting in his own context and culture. And we get to sit in our context and culture. And can you say this with David? There is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. How many other gods are proclaimed to you? Even, even in Christian religion, so many idolatrous ideas can be promoted. And that all of man's stuff, man's traditions, man's ways, the religions that have been formed over time, they all, they all fail to even hold. I mean, it's all darkness, complete and total darkness in comparison to the marvelous light that he shines into our souls when he makes himself known to us that, you know what? I had a moment in my life where I knew that I believed in God, but I knew nothing about who God was. And as he made himself known to me, I've been able to declare day by day over the last 20 plus years, there is nobody like Yahweh. There is nobody like Jesus. There is nobody like the Holy Spirit. Who is like your people, like Israel? The one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make himself a name. Gordon, again, there's a, there's a purpose in him choosing Abraham and Abraham's seed and, the, and how they were to image God and proclaim God's word to all of humanity, just like the church today. We have been made his people, and he is making himself a name, not a church or a denomination or an individual, but God is promoting himself to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt the nations and their gods 
For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever. Which that means it's still true today. Come on Wednesday nights and we'll be jumping into that topic again. And you, Lord, have become their God. There was a time in my life when the creator of the heavens and the earth, he was not my God. I did not know him. But he has made himself known and he has become my God. Now, O oh Lord God, the word, all of the, the word here in immediate context, but we get to sit in all the word of God that you have spoken concerning your servants and concerning his house, establish, raise it up, raise it up forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And this idea of magnifying the Lord, it's, it's made God's name grow in strength eternally. Sit in that definition, sit in that declaration, sit in that prayer. May God's name grow in your life. Your knowledge of him, your understanding of him, his majesty, his kingdom, his purpose, all that he is. May you grow in your knowledge and understanding of him, realizing and praying and proclaiming his name is going to grow in his people for all of eternity. Unending, eternally exalted, growing in majesty and power forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's never going to get old. Does your mind just crumple at even thinking like that? But this is how exalted he is to be. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. Why? Because he's the one to proclaim it. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed, have uncovered this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant is founded in his heart to pray this prayer to you. I love how David shifts from he is totally humbled and in humility before the Lord as he is just sitting down and considering all that's been revealed to him. And then he shifts out of, he's still in that position of humility, but his words get off of himself and he gets this bold declaration, God, now do it. And this is what we're to do with every single one of his covenants, his promises. These are things that we're to treasure, and these are, these are things that we're to pray back to God. God, this is what you said. That's why I've found it in my heart to even pray this to begin with. God, you have promised to give me your life. Give it to me. Do as you've said. You've promised to change my mind and my heart and my words and my behavior. behavior. Do it, Lord. Not because I get to boss him around, because your word is true. And that's what David continues to go on. He says, um, and now, Lord God, you are God and your words are true. Your words are firm. Your words are trustworthy. They are right. You are the one who have proclaimed him in justice and righteousness and love and mercy and all that you are. He is the one that has made the choice to speak these words. Nobody holds a gun to God's head and says, speak. Nobody gives God counsel and says, hey, God, this is what I think you ought to do. This is what I think you ought to say. In his sovereignty, in his majesty, and who he is, he has made the choice to speak all of these words. 
And you and I, we get to make the choice to speak these words back to him and have this, do you have the confidence and the boldness, like David, to say these kind of promises back to him? David is sitting back in his chair, blown away by the words of God that have just been proclaimed to him. And David doesn't sit there and go back and forth of his own mind. Well, did God really mean that? And when he says house, what did he mean? And when he said kingdom, and when he said son, you know, he doesn't sit there and go through all of that. He just boldly says, God, do what you said that you're going to do. And I will follow you, and I will trust you. David doesn't see any of this fulfilled in his flesh. But he still trusts it, believes it, pursues it. Why? Because his words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please, God, would you be content to bless the house of your servant? Lord, bless my house, my household, bless this congregation, bless the house of God, the children of God throughout this world, uh, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord, have spoken it with your blessing. Let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Worship team, come on up. I am long-winded because the word of God is long-winded because it is awesome. As the worship team is coming up, flipping your Bibles fast to Luke chapter... Luke chapter 14. Sit in... God's word to David and all of those promises that you know that you can hold on to directly to yourself, to your household, to our congregation, to the body of Christ, as we turn to worship and to communion, the new covenant. When the hour had come, he sat down. This is uh, Luke twenty-two, fourteen. He sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began questioning, began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. What I want you to see and to press into and know and understand as the father sent his son to tabernacle in human flesh to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Here, Jesus is communicating at this Passover meal before he is going to suffer 
and be crucified for our sins, for the sins of all humanity. He's giving to them this image and this picture. The bread that we partake in in the body of Christ, when we gather together, we remember his body that was given for us. But we also, as we hold this cup, it's to be an image of the covenant that he has given. Here is the covenant, the new covenant, in my blood. My blood has been shed for you. It is my blood that covers and atones for your sin. All of the Old Testament sacrifices and all of the Old Testament pictures are picturing. Here is the real image and here is the real singular act. My blood washes you and cleanses you. And as often as you gather together, we take this cup and we remember that covenant and that promise and go boldly back to God. Are you struggling? Are you fighting with your sin? Are you fighting with your enemy? Are you still in that position of Judas? You're betraying and you are an adversary and you are against God's will in your life and you just want to do it your way? This is what the cup is to image to us. I gave my body for you, Jesus says, because I love you. And I fulfill my promises to you. My blood was poured out so that you can be clean and so that you don't have to die in eternal separation away from me. So as we come, again, come and take communion and worship and just pause and remember all of the promises that God has given to you, Old Testament, New Testament, and have that heart of David of boldly proclaim these things back to God. You may just need to sit there and be taken aback and just be in awe in the remembrance of some of the things that we've spoken about this morning. But let that awe well up boldness in your soul as you proclaim God's truth back to him, as you proclaim God's truth to you. And and see, take hold of what God has made known about himself and about you in him. In humility but in boldness and courage at the same time. Because there's so much peace. There is so much peace and tranquility. There's so much agitation in this world. But in him, he's awesome, yeah?